Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. Well, good morning, Springs Church. How is everybody this morning? The loud guy is, is David. He's on my Malaysia team. I, I told him he asked to do that. Um, my name is Joshua. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at the church. And, uh, you know, I was thinking back, reminiscing a little bit, when I was in Bible college a decade ago, um, we took this course in homiletics, which is the study of the art of preaching and sermon writing. And one particular week, the study was on how to preach at special occasions like funerals and weddings. And I've actually had the privilege of officiating several weddings here at the church. But if I'm honest, I don't really remember what they taught me to do as much as I remember what they taught me not to do. Uh, and that's because my professor told this story, really a, a more of a myth or a, leg a legend. It was like this cautionary tale to warn would-be future pastors of how not to ruin a wedding ceremony. And here's how the story goes, okay? So uh, there was a certain pastor who was asked by a particular couple, they were close friends, if, they would, if he would marry them off, but he was unable to attend the wedding ceremony. And so this was in the days uh, before FaceTime, before text messaging, before even emails. This was in the days of the telegram, okay? So he and his wife wrote a, a Bible verse reference and also uh, uh, just a, a wishing them the best luck. It said, uh, on the telegram, 1 John 4, 18 through 19, wishing you all the best, love, Pastor Tim and Kathy. And we know 1 John 4, 18 through 19, that's the whole, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. We love because God first loved us. It's a perfect verse for a wedding. But the post office accidentally omitted the one in front of 1 John so instead of reading from 1 John 4, 18 through 19, the officiant of the wedding read from John chapter 4, verse 18 through 19, which is very different, okay? And so this is, this is what the officiant of the wedding said. Um, Pastor Tim, a very close friend of the bride and the groom, were unable to attend the ceremony, but wished to impart this wisdom from John 4, 17 through 19. The woman answered him, I have no husband. <laughs> Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands. <laughs> and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Wise words from Pastor Tim and Kathy. Do you have the rings? So I don't remember what they taught us and how to preach at a wedding, but who could forget that tragic story? And uh, the, the moral of the story, the lesson to be learned here is, well, first, spell check, right? Because you can't blame Siri at a wedding. But secondly, it's don't take the Bible out of context because it can have drastic effects on the hearer. And yet that's exactly what we see happening in the world in mass today people taking the scriptures out of context. And like the wedding story, many times people accidentally misuse scripture and take it out of context. Sometimes that's just because of ignorance or, or biblical illiteracy. There's no ill intent on it. But sometimes people intentionally misuse the scriptures for their own evil agenda. Both are really bad, but if I'm honest, I don't know which one is worse. Because on one hand, you would like to say, yeah, taking the word of God intentionally out of context for your own evil agendas is, and if we were judging it by the, the intentions behind it, it certainly is worse. But when we're judging the misuse of scripture by its effect on the masses, I actually think that possibly taking the word of God out of context accidentally with good intentions is worse. 
Because that's how the whole thing happens of, well, so-and-so said that the Bible teaches this and, and I know them, they're a good guy, so I believe them. Or such and such a pastor on YouTube preached this and he's got a big church, so I believe him. And here's the thing, I think many false teachers don't even know that they're false teachers. Well, we have to be careful students of the word of God because when Paul was in Berea preaching on the most central teaching of the gospel, of the Bible, that Jesus is the Christ, he said that the Bereans were noble and that they inquired the scriptures. They studied carefully to see if what Paul was saying actually was reflected and validated in the word of God. And so many times in the New Testament, the apostles and even Jesus himself says, be careful. In the latter days, there will be false teachers and people will have itching ears and they will want to hear a certain message. So they'll raise up for themselves teachers that will tell them the things that they wanna hear according to the pattern of this world. So be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you give the pulpit to. Be careful who you allow to interpret this book. There's going to be false teachers. And again, I think many of the false teachers in this world don't even realize that they're false teachers because their intentions are good. They're not actively trying to get you to worship Satan, but they are accidentally misusing scripture, taking it out of context, which is dangerous for your faith. I might be one of those false teachers. How would you even know unless you went to the word of God and searched it carefully to see if what I'm saying is true? And so, how do we get to this place where we as a generation can be so easily deceived? Well, for one, biblical illiteracy is at the highest it has ever been in our nation. In other words, uh, we as a generation know our Bible less than any generation preceding us in this nation. But more than that, has anyone seen a Jane Austen movie? Jane Austen movie like Pride and Prejudice. The first one that raised your hand was a guy. That's okay. Uh, Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility. Okay, I've been forced to watch those movies plenty of times. And it's basically like the feminine version of Lord of the Rings because it's six hours long, man. It's a marathon, just this mental battle the whole way through. But one thing that I always find really interesting in Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility are the dances, right? There's always a couple of scenes where there's this grand ball, right? And all the, the, the ladies are, are dressed up in the regalia of the Victorian era. Well, technically the Victorian era was after Jane Austen's time. I, I told you I've seen them a bunch, but anyway, so they're dressed up and the guys have these suits and they're facing the ladies opposite in this grand ballroom and everybody on the sidelines is like gossiping in their whispered tones with their hand fans. And then the quartet begins to play this cheeky little symphony piece. And then this very intricate, very elaborate dance is performed where they, you know, walk and they change partners and they're going through these tunnels of people and like stepping backwards and forwards. And it's so incredibly intricate. And, and meanwhile, the two care, thank you. Thank, thank you. Uh, but meanwhile, the two characters, the main characters are like trying to coyly and precociously like hit on each other, but they have to do it quite quickly because they only have like three seconds to try to woo each other. And if you've seen a Jane Austen movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you haven't seen a Jane Austen movie, you no longer need to because I just told you the most interesting part. There's six hours of your life back. You're welcome, okay? But 200 years later, we are so much more advanced as a society. I mean, we've sent people to the moon. We've created artificial intelligence. We can video call people from the other side of the planet. We're so much more advanced than them. Little known fact, uh, I used to be a DJ. Uh, I, as a side job, I would DJ for high school homecomings and proms and weddings. And you know what it's become? of our social dances. Right foot, two stomps. <laughs> Left foot, two stomps. <laughs> we literally call out some uncouth motion and the body part associated with it. I mean, it's like you still have that one guy. I'm like, 
your other right. He's like, my right foot, two stomps. I'm more of a hokey pokey kind of guy. It's, it's, like, it's like we're devolving. It's not elaborate. It's not intricate. And in the same way, we used to have these intricate, elaborate things called the creeds and the confessions, like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Belgic Confession. And these were supposed to be these gospel truths, these foundational truths that every Christian should know, like the back of their hand. We used to recite them at the dining room table. We'd had catechisms for our kids to recite and know. And now all of that, that elaborate, intricate theology has been replaced today by Christian t-shirts, Christian bumper stickers, and great Aunt Linda's occasional Christian Facebook meme. Am I against all of those things? Well, if that's our substitute for being Bereans, for being workmen approved, rightly handling the word of God, you betcha I am. And here's where we're going with this. Here's my point. It's okay to be a little fuzzy about who the Nephilim of Genesis 6 are. Okay, that's a secondary tertiary issue. That's, that's a confusing passage. It's okay to debate what is the correct pronunciation, Nahum or Nahum. I'm more of a Nahum guy. You're like, yeah, of course you are, Josh. But you know what? It's covered by the blood. It's okay. But something that we can't be fuzzy about, something that we can't have unsettled debates about is what is the gospel? We have to have absolute precision. We have to know exactly what the word of God says when we are asking the question, what is the gospel? A, a t-shirt theology will not do. If we are to be people of the gospel, aka Christians, we have to know what God's word says about what the gospel is. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we do not trust or lean on our own understanding, but we are asking you to illuminate. We are asking you to make the word of God come alive. Open the eyes of our hearts. Make straight this path. Be a lamp unto our feet so that we would know what your word says. May we be like those noble Bereans who search the word carefully, that we don't have itching ears. We're not looking to fit this Bible into our predetermined theology or what we want, but we say, what does the word of God say? That is what I will believe. God, help me. Help me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. What is the gospel? Is it a really good genre of Christian music, gospel music? Or is it the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the biographies of Jesus' life and ministry, the gospels? Is it a set of Jesus' teachings or a theological concept? Well, in evangelical Bible-believing circles, we know the gospel to be a message, a truth that we adhere to and that we believe. But here's the irony. If I were to ask 10 different people, even in this room, what is the gospel? The truth is that I would probably get five distinctly different answers. And I know this because I've done this exercise enough. In fact, in preparation for this sermon, I just looked up what is the gospel on YouTube. And I watched probably a dozen videos from America's leading pastors and Bible teachers on what is the gospel. And thankfully, there was a good bit of overlap. They were saying a lot of the same thing, but they, there was just as much difference in what they were saying. And so this should be troublesome because this isn't Nahum versus Nahum type of stuff. This is core theology. This is what we are basing our salvation on. And so Here's what actually happens. Generally, when we're defining the gospel, we fall into one of two pitfalls. We either define it too narrowly or too broadly. When it's defined too narrowly, it's articulated to be something to the effect of Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die someday. That's the gospel. Well, it's actually not the whole gospel. It's not the whole biblical gospel. We're gonna get into that in a second. But when it's defined too broadly, I don't even have examples because there are too many to name, but it, be, it basically becomes a catch-all 
for any Christian-oriented truth, right? It's like, oh, that's the gospel, that's the gospel. In fact, I've even heard a preacher stand up and say, I am the gospel. And I know what he was trying to say. He was trying to say, my life exhibits the gospel message. Uh, I live my life like the gospel is true. My life displays the gospel, cool. But it was really poorly said because you can't be the gospel. That doesn't even make sense. None of the apostles said, I am the gospel. Heck, Jesus Christ didn't even say, I am the gospel. And so more times than not, we don't define the gospel too narrowly. We define it too broadly. It's like in children's church when uh, the answer to any question is Jesus, right? So the Bible uh, children's leader asks, um, okay, who created the world, children? And uh, my daughter Jade raises her hand. She says, uh, Jesus. And... Well, you know what? Colossians 1.15 does say that, actually. So good job, Jade. Yes, Jesus did create the world. Okay, uh, next question. Who, um, who killed Jesus? Jesus. So, well, no, no, actually, no. Well, you know what? In John 10.18, it did say that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. So that's really profound, Jade. Yeah, actually, Jesus did kill Jesus. Wow, you're so smart. You must be the pastor's daughter. She is smart because she knows that Jesus will be a valid answer for 85% of the questions that are asked in kids' church. But the gospel is not like that. It's not this catch-all where everything is the gospel, right? We use it like an adjective, gospel ethics, gospel communities. The gospel is not used like an adjective in the Bible. It's a very specific message, and we need to press on for clarity and precision. But here's what we're not doing. We're not just arguing over semantics of who can word it just perfectly. No, if I think if done in love, you actually could argue over the semantics and that'd be worthwhile because it's the gospel. Again, it's not Nahum versus Nahum. This is core to our faith. And so it's like how Paul says in Galatians 1, 6 through 9, and we'll put it up on the screens. He says, I'm amazed that you are quickly, so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Not that there is another, only there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we have preached to you, he is to be, and then he uses a Greek cuss word, anathema. For us, it's accursed, but it literally means God damn that person to hell forever. I mean, it's strong language, anathema. Verse nine, as we have said before, and so now I say to you again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So Paul makes it crystal clear that there is only one gospel. So you better make sure that you've got it right. But we're not even debating semantics this morning. Instead, I'd like to put forth that the popular understanding of what the gospel is today disregards indexes of the most important theology of the Bible. This morning, we're not just trying to optimize our understanding of the gospel by like a 1% improvement margin. I'm arguing that we are missing roughly 50% of the biblical definition of the gospel, and that's what we're trying to reclaim. So what is the gospel? We're gonna look and do a little word study here this morning. The word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, which is a compound word. In Greek, eu means good, and gelion means announcement or news. So put together, it literally just means good announcement, good news, right? Glad tidings, something to this effect. And so uh, surely the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus the Messiah must be that he died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins so that we can go and be with him in heaven when we die. And that's the overlap that I was talking about, that at least when we talk about the gospel narrowly, that we, we talk about his crucifixion and for bonus points, they might even talk about his resurrection. Is that the gospel? Well, yes, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that I delivered to you that which was of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So yes, it is of first importance. It's the first part 
of the gospel. You could even say it's the heart of the gospel, that it's at the very center of the gospel, but left by itself is not the gospel, at least according to how the Bible, which is our standard, defines it. I'm going to share with you this morning, and I wanna prove this to you, that many passages in the Bible do not actually include Jesus' atoning death as part of the gospel proclamation. So I'm going to show you, and we're going to read a bunch of verses that do not include Jesus' death on the cross in their usage of the word gospel, euangelion, and I'll do my best to try to explain the context. So the first one we're going to look at is Luke chapter 3, verse 18, and we're going to go fast. So buckle up, buttercup. Luke 3, 18 says, so with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. Okay, who is the he in this? It's John the Baptist. What is happening in Luke 3? Well, this is before Jesus began his public ministry. This is before Jesus is baptized. So John the Baptist is preaching the gospel to the people, and Jesus hasn't even hit the scene yet. And so what we need to understand in the context is that John the Baptist is not preaching there's going to be a Messiah who's gonna die on the cross as a substitutionary atonement for your sins. He's not preaching the crucifixion. You know what he's preaching? The kingdom of God is at hand, repent. God is coming, so you better repent. And that's the usage of this word gospel. We're gonna come back to this one, but for now, let's move on to Luke 16, verse 16. Luke 16, 16 says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John the Baptist, and since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Okay, so this one is hugely important in that it highlights a couple of things for us. First, we see this term, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Other places, it's gonna be the gospel of the kingdom, which appears all over the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But secondly, it says that the gospel has been preached through the law and prophets up until the preaching of the gospel from John the Baptist. So this is not a new message. And this is so important for us to take note of, that by the time Jesus hits the scene, the euangelion, the gospel of the kingdom, was actually already common knowledge. Everybody already knew the gospel even before John the Baptist and Jesus. And that's because it was used in Greek culture, in the Roman Empire, specifically by heralds and messengers of the Roman Empire. They would bear the euangelion, the gospel, and they would give news, good news, about maybe the emperor's birthday or a significant victory in a battle or uh, some news from the Greek pantheon of gods. And so for the first century Jews, they had a different usage of this euangelion, the gospel, that imported a whole developed theological expectation about the Messiah and the end times. I know that's a lot. Let me simplify. It's kind of like how we use acronyms, okay? So I'm going to put a bunch of acronyms on the screen and you shout out what they mean. Okay, so the first one is SCUBA. What does scuba mean? What does it stand for? Great job, church. Give yourself a round of applause. Okay, scuba stands for self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. We'll try another one. Okay, bluff, B-L-U-F. It's a military term. Yes, thank you. Bottom line up front. Okay, next one. L-O-T-R. That was a nerd trap. We got you. You fell for it. Lord of the Rings, you nerd. Uh, you're like, well, at least I don't watch Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> got me. Uh, hey, I was forced to watch those the first time. Um, okay, one more. Uh, D-O-T-L-J-C. Does anyone know what this one means? 
Okay, this stands for day of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a term that's used a lot in the New Testament. And so the gospel, the euangelion was kind of like that. You said gospel, but it actually represented all of these different ideas that had been developed through the writings of Moses in the prophetic literature, most notably the book of Isaiah. And so it was such that when John the Baptist or Jesus said the gospel, we all know exactly what you're thinking of. Even if you don't, it's like scuba, right? Even if you don't know what the letters stand for, you're like, that's scuba diving gear. Like you understand the concept. But what if uh, I said, what does PETA stand for? P-E-T-A. And you say it stands for the people for the ethical treatment of animals. But I was thinking it meant people eating tasty animals. (laughs) Well, now we have a problem because we are not on the same page, right? We mean diametrically opposed things. And so that's why we have to be students of the word and we have to understand what the authors of scripture and the original audience understood when they heard the word gospel. What did that mean to them? Okay, so that's Luke 16, 16. My point being that this whole idea of the gospel had already been developed by the writings of Moses and the prophetic literature. Tracking with me so far? Okay, cool. Next one, we're gonna go to Luke 20, verse one. It says, on one of the days while he was teaching the people, he being Jesus, in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders confronted him. So we need to have that last verse to understand that the fact that the gospel was an already developed topic was why Jesus could preach the gospel to the masses. And again, he's not talking about his death, burial, and resurrection when he's preaching the gospel. What he's preaching is the same thing that John the Baptist had been preaching. In fact, to support that more fully, He had already told his disciples, hey, I'm going to be betrayed at the hands of the leaders of Israel. They're going to put me to death. And he charged them not to tell anyone. So now Jesus is preaching the gospel to the masses and he's not talking about his sacrificial, substitutionary, penal uh, atonement for people's sins. He's preaching what John the Baptist preached. Okay, next, kind of going outside of the four gospels, now into the New Testament epistles. Look how Paul uses the word gospel. Romans 1, 15. It says, and so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul is writing this to believers, to brothers and sisters. And he's eager to preach the gospel to believers. Why? So he can remind them of Jesus' death on the cross for their sins? Sure, absolutely. But also to instruct them and educate them on the time and season that they were living in and to encourage them of what is to come. Next one, Hebrews chapter four, verse two. For indeed, we have had the gospel preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard it. Okay, who's the they, who's the them, who's the those? If you go back one chapter in Hebrews chapter three, at the very end of it, you're gonna find that the people he's talking about are the Israelites wandering the wilderness, the 40 years that they were wandering. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Israel heard the gospel in the wilderness wanderings. And you're thinking, I don't remember that story. When did the Israelites hear the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for them? And you're thinking, okay, maybe indirectly by the symbolism of the the bronze serpent on the pole. uh, And and then John chapter three, Jesus is gonna say, I'm that bronze serpent. Or maybe it's the manna from heaven, the bread of life that Jesus is gonna talk about in John six. Or maybe it's a sacrificial system. And I think you can make a strong argument for all of that. I think that's totally in scope. I agree with you. But I also think there's a much simpler answer that we're missing. I'm not gonna tell you it yet. Okay. Galatians chapter three, verse eight. This one blows my mind. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. The reason that this one is so mind blowing to me is that Galatians says that Abraham heard the gospel. Galatians, okay? The book in which Paul says, there's only one gospel is the same book, same letter, that he's just gonna continue the thought and say, yeah, Abraham heard this gospel all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And spoiler alert, 
Abraham did not have the thinking, oh, Jesus is gonna die on the cross for the sins of humanity. That was not the thinking, that's not the gospel that he heard. Revelation, nope, sorry, we're gonna go to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, this one's a little bit longer, so for the sake of time, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but to just give you a brief summary for context sake, the Apostle Paul is in Athens. Athens is the religious and philosophical center of the known world at that time, and he is passing up all of this idols, and he's disturbed at all of the idol worship that he sees, and he sees one particular idol, and it has inscribed on it to the unknown God because the Athenians basically wanted to cover all of their bases. They didn't want to leave any gods out that they didn't know about and thus incur its wrath for not worshiping it, right? And so Paul seizes this opportunity to preach the gospel. So we're gonna read this, Acts 17, starting in verse 22. And so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He's about to proclaim the gospel. Here is Paul's gospel proclamation to people that do not have a Jewish upbringing that don't already understand what the gospel is, okay? So he says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of the heavens and the earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man, talking about Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and their boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Skip to verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, here it is. God is now declaring to all men, here's the gospel, that all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished to all men by raising him from the dead. Okay, this is insane. Because we need to understand that Paul, when he preaches the good news, does not mention the cross at all. When he's at a new people group that does not have a Jewish understanding of the scriptures, he doesn't even mention the cross. He doesn't even mention Jesus by name specifically. What he does say is there's a God who's a creator. God wants all people to know him. He's fixed a day of judgment. There's a man, Jesus, though he doesn't name him specifically, that will be the judge for all of mankind and the proof in the pudding is that God raised him from the dead. This is Paul's gospel proclamation. All right, Revelation 14, six through seven. John the Revelator says, I saw another angel flying in mid heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Sounds like the great commission. And he said with a loud voice, fear God, and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. So in the end times, we know that there will be an angel proclaiming an eternal gospel. Again, there's only one gospel. I'm pretty sure it's the eternal one that the angel flies all through the earth to tell every people, tribe, nation, tongue, this gospel. And what is the gospel that the angel proclaims? There's a creator God. Worship him, fear him, because the day of judgment has come. So what is going on, right? It's like you're telling me that the gospel isn't Jesus died on the cross? That sounds heretical. Yeah, I don't know who to excommunicate, me or you, you know? Uh, but you can feel the tension in this room. That's intentional because remember, I took a homiletics course and they said, build a little angst, you know, and then preach the gospel and get them real good. So let's review, but we're gonna review backwards, okay? Revelation 14, six through seven, an angel proclaiming the eternal gospel without referencing Jesus at all. Acts 17, 22 through 31, Paul preached the gospel without mentioning Jesus's death on the cross. 
Galatians 3.8, Abraham heard the gospel in Genesis 12. Hebrews 4.2, Israel heard the gospel in the wilderness wanderings. Romans 1.15, Paul was eager to preach the gospel to the people in Rome who were already believers. Luke 21, Jesus taught on the gospel before he went to the cross, charging his disciples not to tell anyone he was gonna go to the cross. Luke 16.16, 16, that the gospel has been preached through the law and the prophets and was already a developed idea. Luke 3.18, John the Baptist preached the gospel before Jesus's public ministry ever even began. Dramatic pause. <laughs> so simply viewing the gospel as Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you can be saved is biblically insufficient. That then poses the problem, how do we comprehensively take into account all of these verses Define the gospel biblically. How do we do that? Well, remember this idea of the euangelion, that it was already a developed idea through the law and the prophets, that the gospel word was shorthand and uh, was a fill-in for all of these expectations. Okay, so John the Baptist is kind of our key to understanding this because it was prophesied hundreds of years before that he would preach the gospel back in Isaiah 40. And that's, that's not uh, stringing anything along. That's not a stretch. He literally says, I am the one, the voice in the wilderness crying out. And so we're going to go to that passage, our last passage for today, Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 11. This is how this idea of the gospel had already been developed. It says in verse 3, a voice is calling, Clear the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. It's talking about this, this radical reversal, okay? Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken, a voice calls out, call out. Then he, John the Baptist, um, said, what shall I call out? And this is a little commentary before he gets to the gospel proclamation. All flesh is grass and all of its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of Yahweh blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The, good new, or the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So what he's saying here is, okay, you're about to go up on a high place. You're about to have this public ministry where you're gonna declare to the cities of Judah, to Jerusalem, to the people of God, what the gospel is. And that gospel is eternal. Eternal. The grass is going to wither, the flowers are going to fade, but this gospel is going to stand forever. So it's like amping it up. And we see verse 9, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of the gospel. It says good news there. It's literally the same word. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of the gospel. Lift it up. Don't fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here it is. Here's the gospel. Here is your God. Verse 10, behold, Yahweh, your God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him, talking about the Messiah. Behold, his reward is with him. He brings a reward and a recompense to people before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arms. He will gather the lambs and he will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ears. Isaiah 40 clearly shows us what the good news, the gospel is. And he just said it. It's in quotations if you read the passage. Here is your God. So here's the big reveal, right? Let me cut the tension of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is biblically. Ready? The gospel is the coming of God. The gospel is the coming of God. More specifically, if we're to break it down, that he came once to offer forgiveness to those that trust in him and that he is coming again to judge humanity and restore his creation. The gospel is the coming of God, his first and second coming. This is what John the Baptist preached. He was the voice in the wilderness crying out, God is coming. Repent, make straight a path for him, a highway for our God. And then he sees Jesus and he says, behold, there he is, God in the flesh. This is what Jesus preached. I have come. 
I am God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I will come again with my myriads of angels to divide the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats, and all who believe in me have eternal life. It's what Paul preached. God has come as a man. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a sacrifice, was resurrected, and all who put their faith in him will be resurrected just like he was on the day of his coming, his return. It's what the angels will preach. God is coming. Repent and worship him alone. The gospel is the coming of God. Is Jesus' death on the cross for our sins the gospel? Yes! <laughs> Absolutely! It's the part of the gospel that we know the kindness of God, that there's a creator God that loves us so much that while we were yet his enemies, he died for us. He extends his royal scepter and he says, come to me. And not only does he say, come to me, he says, I'm coming to you. And he gets off of his royal throne and he finds you and he puts his robe around your shoulders. He puts a ring on your fingers. He says, come to me. Come to me, all who are tired and weary, and I will give you rest. Take my offer. Take my burden. It's light. Take my yoke. It's easy. Come to me. I alone can give you rest. I alone am the sacrifice that is well-pleasing to God. I am alone in the sacrificial lamb. It's my blood alone applied on the doorpost of your life so that death would not claim you. It's me alone that has the power to forgive and impart salvation. It's his name alone, one name given to man by which we must be saved. This is the gospel. At least the first part. <laughs> but there's a whole second part to the gospel. And here's the second part. It's actually even better if I can kind of say it that way. It's the punchline. It's actually the resolution to this crazy story called humanity and creation and angels and demons and this big cosmic narrative. When God comes again. When God comes again to right every wrong and put every one of his enemies under his feet, when he vanquishes Satan and his evil forces, when he literally breathes new resurrection life into his people so that we could dwell with God forever, hallelujah, when he purifies all creation from sin and disease and sets everything into a perfect order, when the mountain of God towers above all of creation and all the haughtiness of Man, all the vain ambitions are brought low and Yahweh alone will be exalted on that day. When the lion will sleep with the lamb, when we'll take our swords and we'll beat them into plowshares because the fight is over. It's done. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. This is the gospel. That sounds like a lot. <laughs> yeah, a lot of things happen at the coming of God, but the gospel is really, 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 really simple. So simple, a child can understand it. So simple, I can tell you the gospel in less than five words. What is the gospel? The gospel is the coming of God. You want to unpack that? Oh, Glory, we can unpack that, right? But to keep it simple, we're saying the gospel is the coming of God, that God came once already, life sinless, death sacrificial. Resurrection was the proof that he was who he says he was. And then he ascended into heaven. Angels said, you're gonna come back just the same way, but not meekly, not as a servant to be served, but he's gonna come back in glory. His face shining like all the sun in its full strength. His hair white as wool, a fire in his eyes. This is the gospel. It's really simple. And yet we can take our whole lives marveling at it, staring at it, searching the pages of scripture. This is the gospel. I want, I want to exhort you. I want to exhort you to be zealous for the Lord's return. 
That doesn't make you an end times weirdo. That makes you a lover of God. That makes us people of the gospel. The Bible says that there is a reward, crowns, for people who love his appearing. Oh, that we would be a people that love his appearing, anticipating, waiting for it. That doesn't make you some kind of uh, religious, fundamentalist weirdo as the world sees it. Because here's the deal. I know what you're thinking. Like we, we get, we talk about end times and it's like, I don't want to be one of those Christians that it's like, like you have a new conspiracy theory. It's like employee of the month, except it's antichrist of the month. And this month it's this political leader. And next month it's my mother-in-law. You know, it's like, I'm not into that either. I'm not interested in that. That's Nahum versus Nahum kind of stuff, right? But don't let the, the, the avoidance of wanting to be associated with weird guys that get into all the dates and stuff stop you from believing in the gospel and longing for the return of the savior of the world. It's something we are encouraged to long for, to expect, to live our lives around. And the truth is, who cares if they think you're weird? Who cares? You would be far less weird believing in the return of a creator God than this godless world. I have a pregnant man emoji on my phone. What even is weird, okay? So what if your coworkers think you're weird because you are longing for God's return? That weird belief is the power of God unto salvation for those that believe in it. It might just be the message that saves their souls. Long for his return. Because the Bible says, just as surely as God has come, and we know he's come, it's historically proven. There was a real man named Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified on a Roman cross seen by hundreds of witnesses. Just as surely as that is historical fact, just as surely will he come again. As a matter of fact, Jesus' return is explicitly referred to 1,845 times in the Bible. The second coming of Christ is mentioned in 24, arguably 25 out of the 27 New Testament books. And the two or three that don't are Philemon, 2 John maybe, and 3 John, okay? Out of the 260 chapters that comprise the New Testament, there are 318 references to his second coming. Jesus' second coming is mentioned eight times more than his first coming. Jesus' second coming is referenced two times as many times as your justification and salvation. For every one mention of your salvation, there are two references to Christ's return. Jesus himself taught 21 times that he would return. We as believers are exhorted over 50 times to get ready for the second coming. Depending on the font size of your Bible, it's literally on every single page of your New Testament. Seven out of every 10 chapters references his second coming. That's one out of every 30 verses. And you're thinking, wow, the Bible talks a lot about the second coming of God. Yeah, because it's the gospel. And it's this message that we are meant to wrap our lives around. But here's the thing, and I, I, um, I'll invite the worship team back as we close. I need, I need like one of those rags that they do with their... <laughs> when we reduce the gospel to Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I can go to heaven someday, and we stop there, when we don't connect what his crucifixion was actually unto, the gospel actually loses its power in the life of a believer. We actually lose the thrust for this Christian life when we don't long for the second half of the gospel, his return. Now, I don't have time to go there, but if you would sometime be a Berean, read 2 Peter, especially chapter three. It's what the whole thing is about, is that without a view of Christ 
coming back, splitting the sky to judge all of humanity and restore creation, you don't actually get the gospel. It's an incomplete understanding. Let me do this just as we close. Um, is there someone in this audience who has a, a bill on them, like a dollar bill or something? Raise your hand if you've got a bill in your hands. Stacy, why don't you come up? Can I just borrow that? We're gonna take an offering right now. Okay, you had ones, but you gave me 10. This is gonna hurt. I promise I'm gonna give it back. It's like this. When we only have the first half of the gospel, Stacy, here you go, man. Here, take this. What, you're, you're concerned that it won't work? Concerned that you won't be able to bank on that? In the same way, we should be concerned that a half understanding of the gospel that only includes his first coming won't have the power, won't have the effect, won't cause you to actually live this book out, the book of Acts, because these guys long for Christ's return. You need the whole gospel. It's like saying you're a Lord of the Rings fan, right? Like I'm a Lord of the Rings fanatic. I speak Elvish. And you haven't even seen Return of the King. It's like, no, you're not a fan. You're not a fanatic. You haven't even seen the best movie. Listen, again, I, I hope I've proved this to you, but be Berean, search the word of God. See if the things I'm saying are true. The Bible talks emphatically that there's gonna be a day when Jesus comes back for us, his bride. And that is what we are to long for. Stand with me, stand with me. My question for us this morning that I want us to ponder is why don't we? Why don't we obsess over the second coming of God, the second half of the gospel? Why aren't we thinking about it continually? And I think one of the best things that we could do, Holy Spirit, I know this to be true, is to ask the Holy Spirit this morning, give us a deep, abiding, permanent longing for God's return. I want us to begin groaning out, and it says in Romans 8, that the Holy Spirit was given to us to help us groan for the adoption that we have as sons and daughters, saying, Abba, Father, I am looking forward to that day that you have not left me as an orphan, but you promised you would return. God, would you make us people of the gospel? Lord, would you allow us by revelation of your Holy Spirit to understand for ourselves, not because a preacher told us, but we would understand, the eyes of our hearts would be illumined to understand the hope that we have in this good news. Worship team, would you just lead us in a song? We're gonna sing King of Kings. And I want you to pray and sing this more than just pretty words, that these are truths, that if this isn't true, our hope is in vain. You might as well go home. But if this be true, what we're about to sing, it should dictate our whole lives. The gospel should be the answer to all the questions of our lives. Why do I live in such and such a place? Because Jesus died on the cross for me and he's coming back someday. Why do I spend my money the way that I do? Because Jesus died for a sinner like me and he's coming back for me someday. This is the gospel that I'm proclaiming. Why are these my friends? Why do I hang out with sinners and people that don't know the gospel? Why do I go to Malaysian unreached people? Because God is coming back and he desires that all people should know him. Let's be people of the gospel. Holy Spirit, help us now. Let's sing, let's worship, let's worship now. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website, springs.church.